0: open outspoken it's ophthalmology off the grid an honest look at controversial topics in the field i'm gary wurtz
1: welcome to another episode of ophthalmology off the grid survive and thrive series today our host dr gary wurtz is joined by doctors nandali Venkateswaran and dagny Zoo. listen as they discuss succeeding through fellowship and transitioning into the first years of practice coming up on off the grid
0: survive and thrive is an independent program produced by Brynmar Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson and Johnson Vision Welcome to another special edition of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and we are continuing our theme of surviving and thriving. Uh, Last episode, we talked about surviving and thriving throughout residency. This time, we're going to pick that up and talk a little bit about residency. We're also going to be talking about uh, surviving and thriving throughout fellowship and um, also into the first years of practice. Dagny and Nandini are with me as um, co-hosts of this Uh, special podcast. And so uh, before we get started, uh, why don't we start with Dagny? Why don't you introduce yourself, give us a little bit of your background, and then we'll switch to Nandini.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Dagny Zhu. I'm a board-certified cornea cataract refractive surgeon. I just finished my second year in private practice, where I'm actually a partner and medical director in Southern California. I did my residency at USC Doheny. And then I did my cornea fellowship, where I actually had the privilege of being Nandini's fellow when (laughs) she was a resident there at Bascom Palmer in Miami. Um, So I'm really happy to talk about kind of, well, I guess I graduated from residency about four years ago now and fellowship three years ago. So it's still fresh in my mind. So happy to talk about my experiences there, but also, you know, the transition from training into those early years of practice.
0: Yeah. That is fantastic. Okay. A couple questions for you and then we'll switch over. What was your least favorite rotation in medical school?
1: (laughs) Oh, we're going way back to medical school.
0: We're going back. (laughs) Yes.
1: Honestly, I really dislike general surgery.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Why?
1: Um, Well, for the obvious reasons of, you know, the rotation is probably the most emotionally and mentally stressful um, in terms of the hours and the personalities that we had to deal with. I do think there is some truth in um, some of the stereotypes that we think about when we think about different specialties and general surgeons are definitely tough and I just remember I was exposed to a lot of attendings who just didn't seem very happy what they were doing and um, a lot of females in that field seemed very unhappy and it just didn't give me a good sense of work life and balance and whether that would be a possibility. So that was really disheartening to me. Um, and probably one of the reasons, many reasons that I ended up choosing ophthalmology.
0: I, I agree with you 100%. We could have a whole podcast on why I didn't do general <laughs> surgery and why you didn't do general okay, surgery. Yeah. Um, if you couldn't do ophthalmology, what would you be doing right now, either inside or outside of medicine?
1: Oh, that's a great question. You know, I actually was for some time thinking about doing hand surgery. So I, de- I actually did a lot of orthopedic uh, surgery research when I was a pre-med, uh, mostly looking at spinal fusion. But I love the possibility of specializing in that field to do something more delicate and more microsurgery related and Hand surgery really fascinated me at the time because you can make such a big difference in people's quality of lives. I mean, such a crucial part of, you know, people's function. So actually very similar to why I ended up choosing ophthalmology, I guess they're both microsurgery. I really enjoyed the delicate surgeries involved in each. And then ultimately I chose ophthalmology because I did not want to go through orthopedic residency.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was a smart call. One thing I've I've thought of, and this is how my weird brain works, but neurosurgeons hand surgeons and ophthalmologists all have one thing in common and it's that we're using our organ system to fix the organ system of the other person so neurosurgeon has to use their brain to fix someone else's brain hand surgeon has to use their hand to fix someone else's hand ophthalmologists use their eyes to fix someone else's eyes so i don't know what the significance of that is but i've always found that to be weirdly (laughs) interesting
1: that is so very true yes
0: so okay so let's switch gears to Nandini. I'd love for you to introduce yourself and give us a little bit of background.
2: Sure. So I'm Nandini Venkateswaran. I'm currently a Cornea Fellow at Duke University here in Durham, North Carolina. I did my residency in Miami with at Bascom palmer um, Agni was my Cornea Fellow and I was a first-year resident. And I still remember really funny times that we had. And I just joined faculty at Mass Eye in Boston, so I'm slowly moving up north back to the snow. So I'm very excited about that. But um, I just, you know, I'm in the midst of finishing fellowship, was just in residency last year, so I hope that I can provide some insight into, you know, the trials and tribulations of training, which is both exciting and very challenging.
0: Oh, you are not kidding. All right, same questions for you. What was your, what was your least favorite rotation in medical school?
2: Least favorite would have was actually pediatrics. I love kids, but I really struggle being their doctor. I just end up playing with them all the time. I don't focus on the exam. And sometimes it's just kind of heartrending to see them cry. The families get so upset. So for me, it was just an area that I feel like I just ended up being more of an emotional support to the kid than doing a lot of medicine. Um,
0: yeah. I thought PEDS was way too close to veterinary medicine. So <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Fair I know that sounds bad, but it's mm, anyways. <laughs> uh, all right. If you couldn't be an ophthalmologist, what would you do?
2: I think in medicine, I loved OBGYN. I was actually very much thinking I could be. Um, I liked to gynecologue a lot. I really liked the pathology. I loved obstetrics, kind of the high acuity bring like a new life into the world. It was all really exciting. I think it's kind of a challenging field too with malpractice, et cetera. And some of the surgeries were so long, but I think my personality, I felt like I could have had a lot of fun in that field, but outside of medicine, I have always loved to write and I secretly always wanted to be a journalist um, throughout high school and college.
0: Well, the nice thing about ophthalmology is you still get that chance with venues like this and other things you like to write you will have plenty of opportunities definitely so well great I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you guys have given a little bit a little bit of an intro um, one thing I want to talk about is um, really the training process and then we'll switch gears a little bit into um, transitioning into practice um, so Nandini I'd like to uh, start with you if that's okay sure Um, One thing I've thought about for a while is this balance or lack of balance between being just a worker, someone who is going in and, you know, doing necessary things to get a job done, but not necessarily valuable work um, or high high value work versus being an apprentice where you're working alongside of an expert and really learning your craft Mm -hmm. versus being a student where I feel like as a student, you're more learning from afar. So you're maybe observing, but not hands-on. You're reading about something, but you're not actually seeing it in real life. Where do you feel like that balance is in residency today in your experience?
2: Well, I actually think in residency, I was very, I don't think I was a worker per se, but you you really are kind of a protected student, but you're a very active student. I mean, when I was at Baskin-Palmer, we have our 24-hour emergency room. And as the first year resident, you're literally thrown in. I mean, I still remember my first day I walk in, your patient has a BRVO. I couldn't even look at the retina. But the best part was I couldn't even speak Spanish. And so I'm sitting there in utter fear trying to figure out how I'm supposed to communicate with my patient and how I'm supposed to examine her at the same time. But you, you learn to get over that. And I think you become a very hands-on learner. You just try different things. You figure out how things work. You learn when to ask for help. Um, and you get the job done and you also become a worker. You have to get through an X number of patients, you know, in the eight hours, you're in the emergency room to get things moving because patients are there, they're sick and they're waiting.
0: Dagny, um, same question for you. Um, do you feel like that balance is, um, or or I won't put words in your mouth. Tell me where you think that balance was in your experience and maybe where it should be if it wasn't an ideal.
1: I think, you know, I was really fortunate to train at a program where I didn't really feel like just a worker bee. I actually was really hands-on and, and felt like I had control and autonomy over my patients. So I trained at uh, USC Doheny and you know the majority of our training is at the Los Angeles County Hospital, a huge hospital. And we see you know the most underprivileged patients with the most advanced diseases. And the unique thing about our program was that we would see patients from day one of our first year residency and continue to see them and treat them until the last day of our residency. So it wasn't one of those programs where all the residents would share patients. We literally had our own clinic. Um, those patients were only seen by us, not even by an attending sometimes when we felt comfortable enough. So in that sense, I felt like I had autonomy from day one and kind of like Nandini was saying, you know, we were thrown in from day one. I watched my senior do a PRP. Uh, an advanced injection. And then I did the next one, you know, right away the same day. And so I think because of that, I just felt like I was always fascinated by what I was doing and just fascinated by what I was learning. And it just didn't feel like work to me. It was more like an apprenticeship. I didn't feel like I was doing too much busy work. Um, that changed a little bit when I went to fellowship though.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I understand that when I, when I had, I think, I don't know who told me this, but it made sense to me. He said, if your attending is more efficient with a student on the rotation, then that's actually a bad sign. Um, so you're, you should be helpful. It's not that you shouldn't be helpful as a resident, but you should actually slow your attending down a little bit perhaps if they're teaching and doing enough uh to you know to develop you as an ophthalmologist Now i don't think that's always the case but i think having that in the back of of everyone's mind that i remember attendings at times saying like how am i going to make it through the day my resident is gone um and so i think when things like that are said um you know maybe it's a reality in certain situations in certain days but I think really focusing on the fact that residents are there to learn. They're not there just to um, do all the scut work that a technician could be doing or, or otherwise. Um, I think that's important. I also do think it's important that you do know how to do scut work. And there's a role for that of learning the job from the ground up. Um, So I'm not necessarily saying that residents should be protected from all forms of, you know, non-educational labor. There's some learning that goes on with doing the things that are mundane but I do think that that helps.
1: I absolutely agree with you on that because, because we were in a county setting, we basically did everything on our own. We checked visions, pressures, we took our own uh, photos, we did our, all our own refractions. We didn't have text to help us, you know, and so it would be stressful at times because of all that extra work we had to do, you know, we would feel stressed and short on time, but now I'm so grateful to just even have those skills and um, now that I'm spoiled in private practice, and I have all these amazing techs who do my A scans, B scans for me, and they do it so well and better than me, I know that if I had to, I could still step in and double check the work. And, you know, I still double check refractions and all of that. So it just makes you that much more confident when you leave training to practice on your own.
0: Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, there's something to be said. Actually, before I started my ophthalmology residency, I took all the time that I had, all my vacation time, and actually applied to be a technician at my residency program, like two months early. So I actually worked for eight weeks as a technician prior to my intern year. And I got to learn, first of all, it was great because all the techs um, knew that I was willing to kind of work in the trenches. Um, and so they really helped me the rest of my time as a resident. But just like you said, learning each thing from the ground up, from taking photos to doing your refractions to doing, you know, pressure checks, et cetera. So valuable. And I think also demonstrating to everyone around you that you're willing to do whatever is is um, needed just speaks volumes and uh, really opens a lot of doors potentially, um, if not professionally, at least in the in the sort of the hearts and minds of the people that you're working with.
1: I totally agree. Um, I wanted to say also that the difference between residency and fellowship can be really big in terms of these stresses that you face. So when I was a fellow, I felt more of sort of what you were describing in which we were kind of just doing more of the scut work. Um, I, because we were working more with attendings, you know, we would be the ones as fellows to return patient phone calls and messages, call pharmacies, get pre-authorizations for drugs and things like that. Things that, you know, didn't really feel like you were learning clinical medicine at all. And a lot of times we would, you know, help attendings declog their, their own clinics by seeing urgent patients who would call in with a blepharitis flare, things like that, that would be a little bit frustrating. But in return, you know, we got access to amazing clinical cases. They would let us do a lot of their, you know, cases with them. And, you know, we would get amazing perspectives from all of them. So it's definitely a trade-off there, but I definitely can see how fellowship can feel a little bit uh, frustrating in terms of some of the scut work that we're assigned.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So Nandini, um, talk to me about your your decision to pursue an anterior segment fellowship. Um, when did you decide that that was the direction you wanted to go? And talk to me a little bit about your fellowship.
2: Yeah. So I actually, funny enough, I too was a technician for, for six months before I even went to medical school. It was a very serendipitous thing. I, I had I graduated a ca- college early six months ago, and then I needed a job. So all of that groundwork in terms of learning what ophthalmology entailed um, was really in those six months. And my mentors in medical school were actually in cornea. So when I went to residency, I was pretty set on doing anterior segment. Um, and for me, the reason I wanted to do fellowship is because at Bascom Palmer, we're very lucky. We get to do so many different types of surgeries and work with attendings and so many specialties and really dive into the, the details of each of them. But there comes a time when you're like, okay, I feel really confident about doing X, Y, and Z, but I just want to make sure that I can translate skills to the area that I'm interested in. So, you know, being very proficient in corneal transplants and complex anterior segment reconstruction and and refractive surgery, you have exposure in residency, but you don't have that in-depth exposure that you get in fellowship, And, and that's why I chose one. And I found that those were the cases that got me excited. When I did one, I I really loved it. I wanted to go home and read more about it. I wanted to see how my patients did post-op. And we were lucky because also at Miami, we had our own clinic. So these patients whom I operated on as a resident, I saw them throughout their entire post-operative course um, till I graduated. So there was so much in learning in that that I wanted to, I guess, do it for another year.
0: And then was is academia? Was that always on the um, on your mind as as your as your future professional track?
2: I think so. I think sometimes I I tend to surprise myself in how academic I can be. I think I like to think about things very critically. I enjoy teaching. I really enjoy writing. And academics gives you that variety and that collaboration to be able to do those things pretty easily because those opportunities are at your fingertips. People are always around you. You can jump, you you can kind of bounce ideas between each other. You can say, hey, why don't we write this up? Um, Can you just join me in the OR and watch me when I do this? What do you think? And so I think some of the advice that I've received from mentors is that it's great to start in academics because you get a sense of how it runs and you can see if it's a good long-term fit for you. And hey, if it isn't, then in the future you could consider private practice or even consider more of a hybrid model. And so for me, with my personality, I was like, all right, let me give academics a shot. I think I would be great at it. I think I could be an asset to an institution. But let's see if it's a mutually agreeable fit.
0: Yeah, yeah. So Dagny, I'd love to hear uh, about your transition from uh, fellowship into private practice. Was that harder than you thought, easier than you thought, just plain different? Um, Walk me through that.
1: I would say it's probably harder than I thought. Um, I had been blessed up to that point to kind of have everything sort of go according to plan. You know, I went to a four-year college, went straight to med school, went straight through residency and fellowship, never took any time off and everything just happened back to back to back. And a lot of us, I think in this field are sort of like that. We like to have everything planned out. We're really type A that way. Um, But coming near... um, When the graduation day for fellowship, I think I was one of the very few who did not have anything lined up yet. (laughs) Um, Really? Yes. So, you know, most people, they're looking for jobs at the beginning of fellowship. They probably have something already um, set up, laid out in stone six months before they graduate. For me, maybe because I had a little bit more, you know, of a, I guess, specific expectations in terms of location. Um, My family is from Southern California. My long distance husband at the time was also from Southern California and our goal was to go back to Southern California. And as you know, there are certain markets in this country which just have really limited opportunities compared to other parts of the country and you have to give up some things in order to work in those areas. Um, But for me, you know, the location was really important to me. And unfortunately, you know, when I was looking during fellowship, I just didn't find any great opportunities in that area that I wanted to be. A lot of it was really disappointing, um, in terms of the opportunities that were out there. There were a lot of practices who were looking for associates who were really just, you know, they were just looking to basically help the senior doctor, but not really, you know, wasn't really a plan for partnership a track for partnership. There was really no mentorship, it seemed. And, um, it seemed like a revolving door almost where you would have, you know, one new associate one year and then the next year and another one would come in. And so that was sort of a red flag that I kept seeing. And so I basically took a step back and sort of prioritized what was important to me in a practice. And so instead of just jumping onto the first contract, you know, that a practice would offer me, um, I actually, you know, turned down quite a few and I waited a long time and I guess I entered a negotiating process with my current position for a long time, um, because I wanted to make sure that it was right for me. And so it actually ended up taking almost nine months, um, before I started where I am now. And that was nine months of where I wasn't paying back my loans and I wasn't making, Any money. And so it was a worrying, worrisome time now that I look back on it. But now that I'm here, I'm so happy that I made that decision and sort of took the time to find what was right for me.
0: You know, Dagny, that takes an incredible amount of fortitude and also um, realization that you are worth it. Um, I don't know if I'm saying that the right way. When I was finishing my residency, you know, I had to get a job. I had a wife and two kids and we were in debt up to our eyeballs and it's just the reality of the situation. Um, you know, I probably could not have even afforded to do a fellowship. I knew that. So I needed to get out there and, you know, it was kind of like Jerry Maguire, show me the money. Um, we'll work for, you know, we'll work for food. And so you know, I didn't really have that. Um, but at the same time, I don't know that I had the, um, idea that I was really, um, something that was, um, a unique talent, um, or worth, um, you know, it would have been worth my time to have negotiated with, um, someone. So, you know, I, I congratulate you in this, in the sense that you were willing to say, I'm going to be patient at the exact moment when you're so done with being patient. you know, there's this, you know, there's a little bit of this sense of, um, you know, someday things will get better. Someday I'm going to be, you know, financially independent. Someday I'll be, you know, getting paid for doing all of this. And it's at that exact moment when you're probably the hungriest for all those things that you were willing to wait even longer to um, do something that was a little bit different and give yourself a better long term outcome. And There are very few people I know that have the fortitude to do that. So you should be congratulated for that.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it was really hard, especially seeing my colleagues, you know, starting their jobs and making money uh, while I was still, you know, a little bit lost. But I was really fortunate to be where I was because my husband was at least working at that time. So he was supporting us. And I did end up taking on some per diem jobs here and there, um, working at like an HMO clinic or even doing bedside nursing home exams. So I did what I could to uh, survive that time. but um, And I could probably do a whole nother episode on my whole whole job contract negotiation, but it ended up being a very unique opportunity in my hometown. And um, it was an opportunity for me to actually jump in as a partner right away and to basically purchase this very successful practice. And now I'm just really happy where I am because I feel like I have a lot of autonomy and I get to do a lot of procedures that anyone else this early in my career probably would not be able to do. So I, I'm feeling very fortunate um, where I am now. My lawyer definitely thought I was crazy at the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I've i been there, done that also. <laughs> so I get that. Um, Nandi, I want to ask a little bit of a different question. It's somewhat related to what we're talking about, but I found that it was very difficult in in medical school and then also in residency to sort of maintain a piece of myself. I kind of felt like, you know, you're, you're a hollow shelled out person working so much and just dedicating so much of your life and time to this profession that we love. Um, and, And also at the same time, you see your friends who didn't go to medical school um, who are off, you know, mid-career at this point, really, you know, skyrocketing. And I remember feeling like, you know, I'm still, I'm still not even at the starting blocks yet. I'm still just waiting to run the race. Has that been hard for you? I mean, it was really hard for me, I'll be honest.
2: No, it, I think it's still really hard for me. I mean, you've just, we've just been in training for so long. And I remember talking to someone about this in the sense that, they were advising me that especially at this juncture and in fellowship that at at some point your job doesn't bring you as, you know, as much fulfillment as it, you know, it once did, you know, when you were younger and earlier and that it's really important to, to build yourself and become yourself and find those things that give you peace of mind outside of your career. And I think throughout medical school and residency and even fellowship, I mean, it's always been go, go, go. My priority has been, You know, how do I take care of my patients? How do I learn surgery? How do I find my job? Um, What's my next step? Just like Dagny was saying, we're very organized. We're very type A. We're very, you know, proactive in that sense. But I have really been challenging myself, at least, you know, in the last few months of fellowship to make time for myself. You know, if I have a free day, instead of trying to do something academic, you take it off, go enjoy yourself, do something that you don't get the chance to do during the week you know, try to work out a little bit more, you know, actively throughout the week, maybe a few days, as opposed to just being tired all the time, you know, travel, go see your friends, um, find things outside of work that make you happy. It's, it's tough. There's just not enough hours in the day. And I really would always be so, you know, impressed by my classmates in in medical school and even residency, you know, who had children and who are, you know, living these you who are taking care of so many people outside of their training. And I'm like, I don't know how you guys do it. How do you balance it all? It's so hard, you know, just as a single person. So.
0: Well, I will say this, you know, um, I, I do feel like responsibility, um, sort of fills the container you put it in. So, you know, your time, you know, if you have a certain amount of time, um, you know, you will stretch it or, um, it will expand to fill that. So, You know, we we can become a little more efficient when we're, when we have to be. Um, but one thing I said on the last episode, and I'll sort of say it again is, you know, residency and fellowship and honestly, even beginning a practice because it doesn't necessarily get easier. Um, I think in some ways it's easier, but in, in ways you have not expected or anticipated, it becomes harder. So it's another gear shift when you start practice. Um, but, you, you know, you're running at red line for a long time
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you run at redline for so long where you have little capacity for if anything goes wrong in your life to actually deal successfully with that and not let everything fall down and start you know, missing things. Sure. But you've done that for so long that it feels like it's your new baseline that, that running as if you, if at the end of the day, you have an ounce of energy left that somehow you have not been productive or you've mismanaged yourself. And so I would encourage both of you um, to to learn a lesson. I sort of learned the hard way that uh, it's really, if you go to bed every night completely exhausted without an ounce of energy, you're doing something wrong. Uh, You need to have a little bit left in the tank because there are going to be stresses that come up and there are going to be times when you need to take care of things just beyond um, residency and and fellowship and practice duties. Um, So that's something to just kind of file away a lesson from, from, you know, someone who's been there, done that, um, I'll say. Yeah. yeah. I want to I talk to Dagny a little bit about um, what it was like operating for the first time when you were by yourself. Um, how, how was that? What was that experience like for you when you were done with fellowship and um, maybe not even in your locums uh, experience, but you know, you're, you've got your own practice and now you're the one, you're holding all the responsibility in your hands. What was that experience like?
1: It was absolutely frightening. <laughs> Even just a basic cataract case that you've done a million times in residency and fellowship, it just feels that much more frightening when you're doing it in your own private practice by yourself, knowing that if something were to happen, there's no one else you could fall back on. All the decisions are your own. All the responsibility is your own. This patient is yours. They, are paying out of pocket sometimes to get that premium result. And so the expectations are just that much higher. And it's not that the surgery is any more difficult or the techniques are any different. It's just the position, the new position that you're in with the newfound independence and responsibility. I mean, in residency, I think most of the stress and burnout comes from that uh, steep learning curve where you're just learning how to do something the first time. But in your first years of private practice, you're learning how to do it very well. And you have to do it better than, you know, others in the community if you want to keep having patients come back to you. So it's just refining that technique to a level that is, I mean, beyond what you were used to.
0: Yeah, there's a certain gravity, I think, that comes with that. And it reminded me of, I mean, I guess how someone would feel if they're walking across a tightrope. Um and then suddenly they take the, the net away. And it's like if you fall or if you fail, you know, it's just on you. Um it's your it's your responsibility now, you know, the good or the bad. Um and I definitely felt that. One thing I did was um I had all my settings from my FACO machine from residency, you know, imported. We had the same FACO machine, and we had the same FACO tip, I had the same second instrument. And I actually even had my Alcon rep, Kelly Miller, um come and she was with me in surgery a couple times when I was a when I was a resident and kind of knew how I operated and she came down and was there for me and and kind of also talked to the staff and said you know he's a pretty good surgeon and he always, you know everything's gonna be fine and so she was kind of this buffer uh for me I've, I've heard of other people having their attendings come and observe for a couple of um OR sessions, just as a little bit of a <laughs> transition, which makes them feel a little bit better. And, and I think all of those things are, are good ideas.
1: Yeah, those are great ideas.
0: Tell me a little bit about LASIK. Are you doing, I assume you're doing LASIK in your practice?
1: Yes, I do a lot of LASIK as well.
0: And did you learn that In fellowship, in residency, or was this something that you had to pick up afterwards?
1: So residency, we had basically zero hands-on experience. All we had to do was observe an attending, perform 10 cases, and we would check off that box. Uh, Fellowship is where I first got my hands-on experience. We had to recruit our own patients, and you would give them a discount um, as a fellow doing it to sort of incentivize patients. And so I did a handful of cases there, but nowhere to the point where I was comfortable like I am now. So I would say the first year being in private practice or in practice in general is almost like a second fellowship where you're sort of learning everything and refining everything and just becoming comfortable. So it, it took a little bit of time the first few months in the first year where I got you know more familiar with LASIK, but now, you know, it's just kind of can close my eyes and do it sort of thing so it takes time but you can definitely get there and the great thing about my practice too is that it's part of a large group where there are other surgeons at other centers and so I've had the opportunity to text them ahead of time about cases and what they thought and um, some of them have sat with me as well in the beginning just to you know give me pointers here and there and I've watched some of them as well and picked up some of their pointers so It's definitely something that you continue to learn even in practice.
0: Yeah, I I think that's a really tough thing. Um, And I don't think it's been solved yet um, in terms of giving residents experience with refractive surgery. Um, There are some programs in my area that I think are starting to do better with that, giving uh, residents more of a hands-on experience. But there's a lot of people in the community who have done, you know, 50,000 LASIK surgeries, and it's really hard – um, I felt this pressure starting off, like, how can I, you know, I've done five or 10, you know, how, how can I, you know, really compare myself to these other folks who are, who have done so much and have had such a head start and that that's a lot of pressure. So I don't know really what the answer is, but I do know that there is an unmet need there. Um, I guess there are some refractive fellowships that are out there. I know um, Rob Weinstock and John Birdall and Bill Wiley all have fantastic um, refractive fellowships where they're they're actually giving their fellows uh, quite a good experience in that. But I think those are a little bit more um, harder to find, but maybe something like that is a little bit of a uh, opportunity for the future. So Nandini, one one last question I really would kind of like your perspective on, and uh, maybe this is probably more for either medical students who are thinking about ophthalmology as a future career or even our you know, compatriots and other specialties who, who look on ophthalmology from the outside. How do you think that ophthalmology, I guess, on one level as a, as a specialty is misunderstood, but I may be even more interested in how you think the residency experience is misunderstood?
2: Mm, that's a tough question. I think as a specialty, I think to... Maybe not to, maybe to students, maybe to more of the public. I don't think um, everyone is aware that ophthalmologists are eye surgeons. I think that we are privileged in the sense that not only are we taking care of our patients in the clinic, but we have the opportunity to intervene for them surgically to, you know, give them the visual result that they want. And so I think for students that are looking for a surgical subspecialty, it's, actually highly surgical. I mean, the the best part I think of my training is to be in the operating room and to take care of patients there and to learn all of these exciting new techniques that, you know, we have that are constantly evolving. And I, and I think that's what excites a lot of us. And I'm sure you would agree about what we do. Um,
0: absolutely. Absolutely.
2: In terms of the, in terms of the residency training, um, I don't know what's necessarily misunderstood, but I think as as a medical student or as a trainee, it, it becomes a process where you learn to compartmentalize your learning. There's a one point in your residency where you're really focused on, on medical ophthalmology. You're trying to you know, just learn the, the, the bread and butter of using the slit lamp, of being able to see the eye, of catching that pathology. And then there comes a time where you then transition to your minor procedures, you're starting to be hands-on, And then a lot of your ladder training is you in the operating room understanding, you know, surgery. And it's a lot to learn in three years, you know, and that's why I recommend fellowship because there's so much more in terms of refining your skill set. And just like Dagny said, I think my first year of practice is going to be my second fellowship where I'm going to have the, the, the opportunity to still turn to all of these amazing mentors I've, you know had along the way to help me with all of my cases my lasik cases my transplants my secondary iols you know i still text them i'm like what would you do do you think this is the right plan i fe- my old fellows are people that i text all the time even as a current fellow you know asking for their advice or calling them and being like what do you think um what would you have done in this scenario can you watch this video and tell me what you think you know so i think there's a lot of collaboration community in ophthalmology, which I think is a, is a nice kept secret, which is part of the fun of being part of the specialty. And I love it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I think one of the things I've, I that really opened my eyes and when I sort of think back on it, you know, ophthalmology, we have, you know, there's obviously a huge neurology component to it. So you have to really understand neurology. There's a huge, um, you know, anatomical uh, if you're thinking about doing plastics and, and both aesthetic and function, um, you know knowing the anatomy is is huge um, you 've got a pediatric um, element to it you 've got a pathology element to it you 've got a rheumatology element you 've got infectious disease um, then you have you know the, the all the optics um, and using lasers and microsurgery I, I you know obviously i'm a little bit biased, but I would really um, I think I would challenge others, you know, others to find a more, um, a specialty, a subspecialty that encompasses more of, of general underappreciated, um, just because of all the various aspects of general medicine that impact the eye or vice versa are seen in the eye impact the body. Um, so I think that's one of those things that is, um, kind of underappreciated because we are such a black hole. Of of knowledge, where you know no one outside of ophthalmology in medicine has any clue what we do. Um, They just are so thankful to see you when you show up in the ER because they know they they you will take care of it and not bother them with it anymore. So I
1: feel like you recited my personal statement of why I went into ophthalmology uh, because that's one of the reasons I loved it is because how comprehensive it was and how it involved so many different parts of medicine. And I really feel like ophthalmology is given the short stick in medical school. Most people have a two-week rotation on it on using the ophthalmoscope, which (laughs) is not representative at all of what our specialty is like. And they have no idea. I still can't use that. (laughs) Me neither. And they have no idea how it's connected to medicine in general. So I really wish they would, you know, dedicate more time to it.
0: (laughs) Well, we'll make this podcast um, required listening for all future medical students. How's that sound?
1: (laughs) You guys okay with that? Yeah. I love it.
0: Okay. Excellent. Well, I think with that, we will wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much, Dagny and Nandini. I really appreciate your perspectives. You can follow me on Twitter, at uh, CataractMD, where I will be posting various um, um, updates along with probably cat videos and things I think that are hilarious about ophthalmology. But uh, beyond that, uh, thank you all for joining us. This has been another uh, episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time. Thank you to our contributors
1: for joining another episode of the Survive and Thrive series. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid. Until next time.
0: Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision.